Well, open up your Bible. We are in 2 Peter this morning, uh, starting this incredible book. Uh, we kicked it off last week. If you did not hear the opening message last week in 2 Peter, I encourage you to go find that message online and uh, listen to that and catch up um, while you still can before we start moving along here in, in this incredible book. Uh, this morning, the topic is the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ, as we look at this morning, verses 3 and 4 uh, in our Bibles, right there in chapter 1. And so what I want to do is I, I, I want to read verses 3 and 4 just to get us uh, going. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive into what this passage has to do with the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. This is what it says, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Our Heavenly Father, with our Bibles open and laid bare before us, with the word of truth revealed to us, Lord, we ask that you would grant us knowledge and wisdom to understand these truths, embed them deep, not into our minds, but into our hearts so that we would see lives that are transformed by your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We talked about this last week. The, the theme of Second Peter is this, is that uh, Peter is moving us into understanding our moral responsibility in the midst of moral corruption. In the midst of a, a culture, and we talked about this culture, uh, not only their culture, but our culture as well, the depravity of the culture, what is the responsibility? responsibility of the believer in the midst of moral depravity? And the answer back then is the same answer today, and that is this, is that the answer or the antidote for the believer amidst hostility, amidst a, an evil and morally decaying world, is a passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ. Our responsibility remains the same. We are to pursue Christ and to become like Christ. We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we talked about the fact that that is the theme of this book. It was bookended from verse, uh, chapter 1 in verse 2 uh, on one side. And then in chapter 3 in verse 18, Peter wants us to continually to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He wants us to pursue spiritual maturity when the world around us is decaying morally. The goal is Christ-likeness. Our defense against the culture is Christ-likeness. Our offense against the culture is Christ-likeness. It's the same then, and it's the same now. This is how we push back against the culture. And now, in verses 3 and 4, he even, he even uh, gets more specific in understanding how we're even able to do that. And the way that we're able to do that is through the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's actually not with our own power. It's with his divine power that he has granted to us, that he has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
We don't have to look to the world to find the answers. We look to Jesus Christ. We don't have to look to the world for power. We look to Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. But what Peter does here, and we need to understand this as we understand verses 3 and 4, what what Peter does in acknowledging and saying these very words, that his power, his divine power, has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness, what Peter is saying straight from from the top is this, we are not enough. We are insufficient beings. That's essentially what he's saying, and I don't know how that feels to you, uh, but that's the truth. We don't have enough to get it done in this life. Uh, We're insufficient to save ourselves. We're insufficient to, to sanctify ourselves. We don't have the power. We don't have the ability He's just coming out right out of the gate like, like a horse at the racetrack, just, just ready to go. And, and the, the door swings open and he says this, you're not enough. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. All right? Like, <laughs> hey, I mean, I don't know how that makes you guys feel or not, but the culture is telling you something radically different, isn't it? The world is saying from the time that you're, you're two, three years old that you actually are enough that deep within you, you've got to find yourself. I keep hearing this phrase over and over and over again, uh, to, to, to be, what do they say? They say, uh, you need to become a better you. Be a better you. Can I just tell you, that is one of the most dangerous things that anybody can say to you. Because a better version of me is a very wicked sinner. And if we want people to become a better version of themselves, a better version of themselves is more and more sin and more and more selfishness. The best version of you apart from Jesus Christ is a wicked sinner. So we don't want that from people. We actually don't want people to become a better version of themselves. And Peter jumps out right out of the gate and he says this, you're insufficient, you don't have the power, You don't have all things that you need uh, within yourselves to get it done. Don't become a better version of yourself. Rather, his divine power has granted to you, has given to you all things pertaining to life and godliness. You need to look outside yourself to the only one who can give you the power to grow in godliness and that is Jesus Christ. And we need to become a better version of Christ within us, not a better version of myself. We need to grow in Christ. And I think John the Baptist said it so clearly. In thinking about this, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. So actually, I need not a better version of myself. I need a better version of Jesus Christ within me. I need to point people to Christ. I need to stop relying on myself. I need to stop thinking that I've got the power to do it. I need to stop thinking that in and of myself, I've got all these great and wonderful attributes that that I need to just lean into within myself and to show them to the world where he's saying this, no, 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 no. His divine power is granted to you all things pertaining to life and godliness. 
We're deficient human beings. We're not sufficient apart from Jesus Christ. I think humanity knows this, actually. I think the world knows they're deficient beings. The problem is, is they're looking for answers in all the wrong places apart from Jesus Christ. They're looking to knowledge. They're looking to psychology. They're looking to emotionalism. They're looking to a spiritual high. They're looking to psychiatry. They're looking to all different kinds of therapy, all different kinds of avenues apart from Jesus Christ because they understand they can't get it done. They can't defeat sin on their own. They can't save themselves, and so they're constantly looking for the answer, and the world is saying, hey, just look within yourself. Just keep going back to you. You having a hard time battling a sin? Well, dig a little deeper. Try a little harder. You can't find your purpose in life? Go, go dig a little deeper. And so there's already an assault on the the sufficiency of Christ. There's already an assault on the sufficiency of God's word as everybody else is going anywhere but Jesus Christ. And what Peter wants us to say, hey, if you're going to battle moral moral corruption, you're going to battle the evil within this world, then let's start with this. You're not sufficient. You're not enough. You need Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has all things given to you for life and godliness. It's sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Believers have everything they need in Jesus Christ to live a life of holiness. Believers have everything they need to pursue a life of holiness, of godliness. That's what it says. Life and godliness. This life and then Godliness, meaning holiness or the pursuit of Christ. I want to show you this, and it keeps saying this. If you look at even, you know, you draw your eye into verse 3, it says, Through the knowledge of him who is what? Who has called us to his own glory and his own excellence. Who has received his divine power? When you talk about this first, it's those who have been called to his own glory and his own excellence. Only those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, who have been called by God, now have his divine power within them. It means this, that that Christ now lives within you, that you are in him. I want you to do this with me. Turn over to Colossians. Turn over to the book of Colossians with me, because I want to show you the unity that we have in Christ, that it is Christ who lives within us. This phrase, in him, in him, in him, is a popular phrase in Colossians, because he wants us to know that it is, it is Christ that is within us. Within every believer who has been called according to his glory. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse 13, it says, He has delivered us, right? He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. First, next, next words. In whom? In Christ, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. Look down in, in chapter two. It says it again. 
In chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, In whom or, or in him are what? Are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. What? In Christ. Verse 5, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so what? Walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according, what? To Christ. For what? For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in what? And you have been, what? Filled in him, who is the head of all and rule and authority. Verse 11, in him you are circumcised with a circumcision made without, without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried, what? With him in baptism, in which now you are raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you were, circum were, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made what? Alive together with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the debt of the, uh, or the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What is he saying? He's saying this, because of Jesus Christ, you are now complete. Believer, you are in him. You, you are complete now. Church, the search is over. You need to look nowhere else to find fulfillment. You need to look nowhere else to find purpose and meaning in this life. You need to look nowhere else to find strength. You are in Christ and being in Christ, you have been made complete. The full sufficiency of Christ lives within you. You don't need to look anywhere else. You certainly need to stop looking for yourself and within yourself to find power to live a holy life. That well will run dry very quickly. But you're complete in Christ. Christ is enough. You're complete in him. You're no longer deficient. You're no longer lacking. You're no longer insufficient to live a holy life. You're no longer insufficient to grow in grace and mercy, to have joy and value and hope. You have fulfillment in life because Christ has made you complete in him. Which also means this. We really have no excuse to sin, do we? We really have no excuse to live a disobedient life. Christ is within us. The Holy Spirit is within us. Now I want to show you something here. We go back to 2 Peter with that, with that in mind and understanding the sufficiency of Christ within us, that He completes us. We are complete in Him. The first thing I want you to notice is this, is His divine power. His divine power. 2 Peter 
Uh, it says it right there, right at the start, verse 3, his divine power. What does this mean? Who is his? Well, it goes back to uh, the end of, of, of verse 2, where it says that, uh, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the Lord, or in the knowledge of God, and what? And of Jesus our Lord, his divine power. Who's his? Jesus our Lord. What is divine power? The word here for power is the word for dunamis, or the word dunamis, it's where we get the word for dynamite. It's this kind of power, it's achieving power. It's intrinsic power or, in, or inherent ability, power to carry out some function. Might, strength, it is given to us from Christ, it's residing power within us to be able to complete a function. And what it says here is that it's Christ's divine power, his divine power that, that's within us, which means this, we understand what Christ's power is. His power was a power that was able to heal the sick. His power was a power to, to calm the storm. He had power over demons. He had power over even food as he was able to multiply food. He had power over death as he was raised Lazarus from the dead. He had power over the grave. This power that Christ had is the power that is within us to live a life of holiness, to live a life of godliness. We carry the power of Christ within us. It says it there. It's his divine power has been granted to us. It's been given to us. But here's the problem, church. The problem is this. We love our own power. We are infatuated with our own strength. We love the fact that we don't need help from anybody. We, we love power. We, we want Everyone to think that we've got it together apart from anything. We don't need help from anybody. We're powerful. In this world, you don't show weakness. You don't show that you need help. We love the fact that people think that we're strong enough. And so we don't depend on the power of Jesus Christ because we don't think we need it. And we wouldn't dare tell somebody that we have a weakness. We're too prideful at times to depend on Christ's power. We would rather try to fight sin. We'd rather try to handle, uh, handle a trial in our life. We'd rather try to pursue holiness on our own power when Christ has said he's given you his divine power to go into all these trials, to fight all these temptations. He's given that to you. Just access the power of Jesus Christ. You don't need to use your own power. Your own power is insufficient anyway. But our pride keeps us from saying, oh, Christ, I need you. I want your strength today. Christian, God has granted to you through Jesus Christ the power that was given to him is now within you. And the other side of that, it's true, is we come to a point where, where God breaks us down so much to help us recognize, yeah, I really don't have the power. And then you say, okay, Lord, I'm going to depend on your strength today. 
I don't have the strength today to continue on in this trial. It's too much. It's overwhelming. I don't even know if I want to get out of bed today. I certainly don't want to go face this person today. And in that moment of weakness, be reminded of this church that Christ has given to you his power for today. He's given to you his power to live this life, to face those difficulties. But notice what his power has done. Look what it says. His power has been granted to us, has granted to us what? All things that pertain to life and godliness. So secondly, I want you to see this, his divine provision. Through this power, what has he granted to us? Through the power of Christ, he's given you what? All things. Not some things, not a few things. He's given you all things. Turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see this because kind of as we flesh out what this means, this divine provision of of God as we pursue a life of holiness. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul, again, kind of like, like Peter, can't help himself, but just start out by encouraging his church and understanding salvation and understanding what it means to be a child of God. That in verse 3, after his greeting, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who what? who has blessed us in Christ, underline it, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then he goes on to list off the roles of the, of the Trinity within salvation that God has chosen you for the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. He's predestined you for adoption to his son, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He's blessed us in the beloved because we are in him. Verse 7, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, been lavished upon us, wisdom and insight, what to make known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan of the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Verse 11, in him these same spiritual blessings, what happens? We've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of His will that works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory." We have been granted by the power of Jesus Christ all things for you to live a life of holiness because of Christ. It means this, this all things. It means you have been given the grace through Jesus Christ to be gracious to others. You have been given the ability through Jesus Christ to be forgiving like Christ to forgive others. You have been given patience from Christ for you to be patient to others. You've been given discipline, the discipline of Christ to discipline your life, 
To have Jesus Christ, listen, is to have everything you need in the spiritual life for time and for eternity. To have Jesus Christ is to have everything. He gives you hope. He gives you peace. He gives you purpose. You are in an all-sufficient relationship with Jesus Christ. Pastor John MacArthur says this. says, you have more than you need. Boy, that, that's not how we view the Christian life, is it? You have more than you need? No, we always think this. We need more, 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 more. Not just, you know, you have more than you need. You have all grace, superabounding, overflowing. You are always completely sufficient for everything. You have an abundance for every good deed, which means you can be independent of external circumstances for life and godliness. It means particularly to be independent of the service of other people. As a believer, there's a sense in which you're not dependent on other people. You are self-contained and sufficient in Christ who is within you. In other words, you have within you grace upon grace upon grace in Christ, abounding to every need of life so that you are sufficient always for all things. Christ within you. There's a story of a man, and maybe you've heard of him, William Randolph Hearst. For those of you who are familiar with California at all, in the Central Valley, there's a, there's a castle there called, called Hearst Castle. William, uh, during that time, uh, or you could say this, in today's money, William had inherited $172 million in today's money. He had his grandpa's uh, 40,000 acres, and so he built out this massive castle because, well, why not? I mean, everybody needs a castle. But in this castle, he collected art, and uh, he had over 20,000 pieces of art. The Pemberley household has zero pieces of art, in case you were wondering. Hearst Castle had 20,000 pieces of art, and William was infatuated with art. He just loved art, and so he, he would go around, and he'd find the greatest art. He'd bring it into, into his collection. He'd leave it in warehouses because he didn't have enough walls to hang it on or places to put it. And he was reading in a newspaper about this art, and he was like, man, this is incredible, this art. I've got to have this art. And so he sent out all these agents all around America, all around the world, to go find this special art that he had heard of. And the agents came back, and after scouring everywhere to find this art for, for him, they came back and they reported, hey, we, we found it. I want you to know we found it. And he's like, great, where is it? And he said, it's in one of your warehouses. You've had it the whole time. And sometimes that's the Christian life, right? We're just searching and searching and searching all over this place for this one thing that we think we need to get over that hump and defeat that temptation in our life. We're searching and searching for that one thing that we think we need to get through, have a breakthrough in this trial. To be able to have this right relationship with our spouse, to have this right relationship with our coworkers, to, to be able to evangelize. We're, we're scouring the world when the answer is right within you. It's Jesus Christ. He has the power and he has granted to you all things for you to live a life of holiness. And what we need to go back to is 
a love for Jesus Christ? The answer again, church, is yes, the gospel. You say, well, how do I obtain such power? How do I, how do I know this? How do I get back to understanding Christ? Well, here's the read your Bible again sermon. Look what it says. Pertains to life and godliness through what? Through the knowledge of him. How do I access all these wonderful spiritual blessings? You get back into the word of God. You study God. You love God. You meditate on God. You think about God. You talk about God. You grow in the grace of knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And as you know him, as you love him, as you serve him, as you commit your life to him, then you will recognize his divine power flowing through you as you continue to defeat and conquer sin as you handle the trials of life. But you can't do that apart from the word of God. You can't. All those things are accessed through a knowledge of him. And where do you find him? In the word of God. Some of you understand this. I'm just going to just say, you understand my frustrations with the local churches today. And I, you hear me say this, my frustrations with churches today is they want to abandon this. And when you abandon this, what are you saying? Christ isn't sufficient. The word of God isn't sufficient. Something is broken. I got to go find an answer to it outside the word of God, outside of Christ, where I'm here to tell you this, Christ is enough. The Bible is enough. Spend more time in the word of God. Love Christ more and more and more so that you can access all these wonderful spiritual blessings that he has granted them to you. So we spend a lot of time here, and I continually remind you of this, that you need to be in the word of God. It says it there, that his divine power is granted to us, what, all things that pertain to life and godliness, what, through the knowledge of him. The source of everything we need is found in the word of God. God's word is sufficient. It's where we find Christ. It's where we learn how to, to know him and love him. C.H. Spurgeon says this, It is through knowing God that we realize that his divine power has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. For all these things are in him. And we know him, trust him, love him, and become like him. We also come to possess all those precious things in him. Talked about this briefly last time, this word for knowledge. It's not just a head knowledge. It's an intimate relationship. It's participation in this knowing of who God is. It's not just one-sided, but it's a heart submission to, to knowing who God is. It's not just being able to rattle off facts about the Bible. Bible trivia time. But it's growing in a deep love and a heart transformation of who Jesus Christ is. And so we go back to the Word of God because we know it's sufficient. Just by way of reminder, what I want to do is I want to just show you the sufficiency of the Word of God. Turn with me to Psalm 19. 
Psalm 19, and I, and I really struggled this week and last week to decide if this was going to be one sermon or two, just so you know. And I'm keeping it at one, but I'm, I have to show you this because I don't know if I'll get an opportunity to show you the sufficiency of the Word of God. In Psalm 19, if, if you have a Bible you like to write in it, bra- just bracket uh, 7 all the way down to 11 and just write sufficiency of Scripture right next to it. The Word of God is enough. Psalm 19, verse 7, it says this, The law of the Lord is perfect. What does that mean? It's not lacking anything. It has everything. The result of a, a perfect law is what? It, it revives the soul. You're looking for soul revitalization, revitalization this morning? Go to the Word of God. The testimonies of the law is sure. It makes wise and simple. The precepts of the law are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant worn. In keeping them, in keeping them, there is great reward. The Word of God is effective, it is true, it is perfect. It enlightens the mind and the heart and the eyes. We don't need to go to any other source. We have it right here in the Word of God. It is enough. I want to show you another thing here. Thirdly, I want to show you this. I want to show you his divine promises. Let's go back to 2 Peter as we begin to unpack this even more. We've got his divine power, his divine provision. Now I want to show you this, his divine promises. He has given to us his divine promises. Look what it says. It says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. As we begin to pursue a life of godliness, as we begin to pursue a life of holiness, and we recognize that we're not sufficient, but we're, we are sufficient in Jesus Christ, then we notice that he has also granted to us this, his, his precious and very great promises. Two adjective here, adjectives here to the word promises. A promise is only as good as the person who gives it, Right? Promise is only as good as the the one who gives it. And he's given to us these precious promises, these highly valued, highly desired, precious promises. They are also great promises. They're majestic. They're they're these wonderful promises of God. These promises here are those that were given to us in the Old Testament about who God is and what he's done. These are promises of salvations. These are promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. These are promises that were given uh, from Abraham to Noah to, to David. They were promises all throughout the word of God. And he's saying these are very precious and great promises, and they have been given to you through the word of God. And you say, why, why is it important that Peter would want us to know this and to understand this? It, it's because of this, when, when life is difficult and when life is hard and, and we're going through these, 
these difficult stages of life, we need the promises of God to hold on to, to remind us what? Not just of his promises, but to remind us of his character and who he is. And so the promises that we cling on to point us back to the character of God. Because the promise is only as good as the one who gives it. And we go back to God and we realize this, that God has never broken a promise. God has never changed a promise. He's never pulled out of a a guarantee. He's a promise-keeping God. And it's His unchanging promises and are the things that we hold on to in the midst of the storm. This is a gift of God to us as we pursue holiness, His promises. I can remember even thinking back this week as I was down in San Diego of those early, early days of, of church planning and the difficulty and the hardship that it was. I was like thinking, I was like, where were all you guys five years ago, by the way? I mean, and just remembering how hard it was. I mean, every, every side of my life was, was pressed in by God. He was just pressing and pressing and and crushing uh, my own spirits and, and souls to the point of complete dependence on God. And during the time, I, I didn't like it. I, I can remember just driving down the freeway. I was thinking to myself, what, am, what in the world am I doing? What, what is happening right now? God, where are you? Why, why aren't you working right now? Why aren't you moving right now? I'm, I'm, I think I'm doing what you want me to do. And he's just pressing and pressing and pressing in. The one spiritual handle that I could hold on to, the one sure anchor that I could hold on to in the midst of the hardship of all those, those difficult times was the promises of God. And there was one in particular where Jesus Christ said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it, in those times, I kept going back to this promise, okay, Lord, you're going to build your church. You're going to build your church. And I had to be reminded, if you use me, great. If you don't, you're going to find somebody else. But either way, you're going to build your church. And that was the thing that I just held on to in the most difficult of times. I'd hold on to the promise that he would say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because there was times where I'd say, God, it feels as though you've left me. It feels as though you're gone. And I'm trying to build your church. I'm trying to do what's right. But I had these precious promises. These great promises of God that, that literally I would hold on to and I would, I'd hold God to those promises. I'd hold God to as He's a faithful God. You, God, you told me you'd never leave me nor forsake me. God, you told me you would build your church. And the promises of God became super sweet and precious and great to me in the midst of the, the difficult and hard times of life. And, and that's exactly what he's saying here. This is, church, this is what you have. You have these, the promises of God to hold on to you when life is difficult and hard. What else do you have? What sure foundation do you have? Apart from the word of God, why do we dare say no more of this? Give me the world. Give me psychology. Give me another religion. Give me more knowledge. No, we go back to the sure 
precious promises of God. And we hold on to those. Amongst anything else, John Piper, he says this, and I love how he says this. He says this very practically. I think this means that we must day by day go to the Word of God and search for great promises. Fix one or two in your mind and hold them there before you all day. And use them to overcome temptation to sin and to incite you to daring acts of righteousness and love. God's willing to give you all the spiritual blessings in life, and, but we've got to be willing to say, okay, I need to search the Scripture and find those precious promises, those great promises to hold on to them, because that's how I access His divine power. One more thing is this. Number four is this, is our divine partaking. Look at what it says. I got to open my Bible back up. I was getting fired up. Close my Bible. You should never do that as a pastor, by the way. Don't ever close your Bible till you're done. That was sermon prep message right there. Don't close your Bible till you're done. Because everybody else will close their Bible. Open your Bible back up, like I did, and notice this. It says this. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. What? So that through them you may become what? Partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What do we want to know? What do we need to understand here is that we are divine partakers of who Jesus Christ is. His divine power is granted to us all these things so that we can what become closely connected to Christ, so that we can become like Christ. That His divine power and His nature is now revealed in us and through us to the watching world. It's so that we can become like Christ. Is this saying that we become a God? No, certainly not. That can't be. There's no way. It's not that we become a God, it's that we become like God and we partake in the same nature of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? In Jesus Christ, you receive everything you need for life and godliness. John 1.12 says that you become children of God. Romans 8.9 says the Spirit of God dwells within you. Galatians 2.20 says I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me. Colossians 1.27, it is Christ in you. You are becoming and you are partaking in the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And listen, church, nothing pleases God more than when you become like his son, Jesus Christ. You're participating in that which God has granted to you and God has given to you in his son, Jesus Christ. And we do that, why? And it, it tells us why. It says, as we partake in the divine nature of Jesus Christ, we've what? We've escaped the corruption that is in the world. We've, we've separated ourselves from the world and its sinful desire because Christ is within us. He's empowered us to live in this world. We pursue a life of godliness and we have escaped the corruption that is in the world. It's 
creation is decaying, as the world is decaying. This is what he's talking about. The corruption that is within, within it and its falling na- fallen nature because of sin. As believers, we have escaped that decay and that destruction of the world. And we have partaken in his divine nature with eternity to look forward to. And all of this, church, is bound up in Jesus Christ. He's sufficient. If you didn't hear anything else I said, I hope you did. But if you didn't, then hear this. Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and all it has to say. And I'm I'm sure at first glance we read this verse and we kind of go, yeah, that's kind of neat. Or oftentimes maybe we read a verse and we just skim over it, not recognizing the riches that are truly found in it and the way that it actually comforts our soul. Lord, all of us are living in a world of moral corruption, of decay, of sinfulness. Because of that, the the overflow of the decay and sinfulness in the world, there is a, a battle raging of temptation and sin and a desire even maybe to pursue the the world because of sin and temptation. There's trials of life that are hard and difficult that can be overwhelming in our life. And then we open up the pages of Scripture and we turn to 2 Peter 2 and we're reminded of this, that Christ's divine power has been granted to us for all things pertaining to life and godliness, what hope we have in Christ. Christ, you complete us. We're complete in you. Lord, may we run to you in times of trial. May we run to you in times of temptation. May we truly believe that you will give us the power that we need to be loving, to be gracious, to be patient, to be forgiving, to find hope and joy and value in this world. As the assaults of the world want to tell us that Christ isn't enough, his word isn't sufficient, as the world wants to pull us away to go find help outside of Christ, outside of the word of God, may our radars, may our sensor go up and say, no, Christ is enough. I need to run to him. I need to go back to him and his precious and great promises, and I need to cling to that today. And may we be a church that is fully satisfied in the sufficiency of Christ and his word that he has given to us. This is all we need. Encourage our hearts today in that. In Jesus' name, amen.